Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is episode 10 of the Anxiety Savvy podcast, which I'm really excited to say. And I'm also excited for today because I get to talk with you all about one of my favorite topics under the sun. So today I'll be talking about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. And one of the reasons I love treating OCD is because I find it, it's, it's a pretty fascinating disorder and it's, it responds really well to effective treatment. And so as a therapist, it is just so, so rewarding to work with individuals who have OCD, right? Because I get to see them make some really drastic changes and to see their lives just get so, so much better. Right? They end up having so much more free time once OCD is no longer calling the shots. So I'm excited to talk with you all about about what OCD is today, and I'll talk a little bit about treatment, how we go about treating OCD today, but I'll probably save that um, the, the bulk of that conversation for the next episode. But before I kind of dive into the content for today, I want to give you all a heads up that this episode is going to be a little less polished, most likely, than some of the episodes you've heard from me in the past. Um, and, and I want to be like super upfront about the reason for why that's the case. And and I think this actually might even be relevant to those of many of those of you listening, something that you might struggle with as well. So I uh, about a week or so ago, I was interviewed for a, a larger magazine about uh, about self-care. And I had all these great, you know, gems, words of wisdom that I was offering. And then it hit me like a day or so later that I was just completely exhausted, like physically. My body was aching and I just felt like I was so drained, like a little task felt like they took so much energy. And so I realized I, I, you know, started to think about ways that I might be able to incorporate some of what I had suggested in as part of that article or in that article, um, you know, ways that I might be able to incorporate some of those strategies into my own life. And I'm also trying to be really mindful about how I spend my time, right? So I want to, I want this podcast to be really engaging and interesting and I also, I want to keep it going. And so rather than make sure it sounds absolutely perfect every time, which it, it never does anyway, my goal is going to be prioritizing, like to prioritize just getting these episodes out. 
So this is going to be a rather unscripted episode and I'm probably not going to clean it up as much as I might typically do in the editing process. But I, I want to, I'm putting that out there, like I said, I, because I think this is something that many of us can work on, right? The, um, and that relates to OCD a little bit too, but I think oftentimes it's easy to get caught up spending a lot of time on work, right? And to kind of neglect these other things that like help to fuel us and sustain us. And, um, and I've actually, it's interesting too, I've been, it's just come up in a lot of my sessions this week with my patients that a lot of people seem at the moment to be, um, you know, to be struggling to find time for self-care. And so that'll probably have to be a whole separate episode at some point in time. But I'd encourage you to, you know, if you can, if there are ways in which you can flex a little bit and maybe, maybe do a little less work and take a little more time for yourself in the next couple of weeks, I'd encourage you to give that a try as I'm going to be doing here today. And with that said, I'll, I'll go ahead and shift over to talking about what OCD is. And I want to just start by, by noting that I think um, there's a lot of just misunderstanding about what OCD is out in the general public. And I think uh, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot pretty loosely and misused a lot. So you might hear people say like, oh, I'm so OCD because I you know, I organize my closet or I like to color code my, my notes or something in class. So you might hear those kinds of comments, but, and in some cases that, that could be a symptom of OCD and that could be a sign that maybe OCD is present, but oftentimes it's, it's not. Um, and so OCD is, is a little different than what maybe we realize. And also I think a lot of times we think OCD is just about, you know, um, doing things in a, in an exact way or like cleaning, you know, cleaning, washing our hands a lot. Um, or uh, or checking a lot, checking the stove, checking the oven. But OCD, what I find so fascinating about OCD is that it can present in such a just like a number of different ways. And and what I'll discuss today too, uh, that I think is just again also really interesting about the disorder is that it tends what people tend to get anxious about, tend to obsess over, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means are the things that matter most to them in their lives. And so there can just be so many different ways in which, again, OCD manifests. So we'll talk a little bit about some of those subtypes of OCD today and, and in future episodes as well. But I, I just wanted to start off by, by noting that, that um, and noting that that's one of the reasons I want to do this episode, to clear up some of these misunderstandings about what OCD is. So with that said, let's go ahead and get started talking about uh, OCD. So when we talk about OCD, there's there are kind of like two sets of symptoms. And, and the, the first set of symptoms are obsessions. And when I talk about obsessions, I'm talking about thoughts, images, ideas, impulses that are experienced as intrusive and unwanted, and that cause a lot of anxiety or distress. So these could be, you know, in, in like I mentioned, a lot of us think about OCD in terms of like, you know, being contaminated. So it could be thoughts that, oh, I, you know, I touched that, that object that I think is contaminated. And so now I, I feel like I might be contaminated and might get a horrible disease or um, because I touched that item or I just might get really sick. 
So that would be an example of an obsession. And and usually that thought that I might get really sick from touching that is again, it's it's really distressing. There and and we'll talk about all the different um, the other types of obsessions that 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 one can have um, in a bit. But you know, just to throw some others out there, these might be thought obsessions that like maybe I might harm someone I really care about. Maybe I might, you know, take a knife and stab them with a knife or even though that thought is really distressing and scary um, and so incongruent with what I actually want to do. Or they might have thoughts related to contamination that like, you know, maybe if I touch this thing that that person touched or look at that picture of that individual that maybe I'll start to take on some of their essence. I'll almost become contaminated by that individual in some way. And then there can be so many other thoughts. So kind of this need for symmetry or exactness, right? I need these things to be arranged in such an order, in a certain order. And sometimes there's a fear that if they're not, that maybe something terrible will happen. So there's this like magical thinking attached to it. If I don't do this activity, if I don't you know, do this chore in this one exact way, maybe something horrible will happen. Like maybe my, my relationship will end. Maybe my day will be terrible or I'll, you know, get a horrible grade on my test. Um, maybe my mom will get into a, a, a serious car accident. So there can be a lot of, um, you know, concern about the consequences of one's behavior and about what might happen if one doesn't do a certain behavior in the exact right way. And then there can be, again, this I'm just scratching the surface here, but there can be uh, obsessions around how one comes across socially, like, you know, a need to say things perfectly and completely um, and make sure that they're always perfectly understood. There can be obsessions around um, what we call, like, you know, moral obsessions or, or what we sometimes call scrupulosity. So moral obsessions, religious obsessions. So sometimes it's obsessions around like, you know, did I forget God? Is God going to punish me? Or did I do the wrong thing there in some way? Did I, you know, should I not have said that comment to that person? Or should I have agreed to do this for them instead of not doing that for them? Did I get correct change from the store can be another one that people can sometimes get stuck on. So again, I just am throwing some of these out there. Um, you know, there can also be concern with like, maybe that, not that I'm going to develop some sort of horrible disease, but maybe I already have it. Maybe I already have cancer or some other, even like, um, uh, you know, some other disorder, um, that maybe just hasn't yet been diagnosed, that maybe the doctors have missed it or they haven't run the right test to diagnose it. And that can be really distressing that, that fear. There can also be what we call sensory motor obsessions, which is where there's a concern about one's bodily function. So there's heightened focus on say, you're blinking, you're breathing, you're chewing and like a concern that maybe you won't be able to stop focusing on these things or you won't be able to control these things. And related to that, there are also sometimes obsessions about obsessing. So like a concern that not so much about, you know, that if I have the thought murder that I'll become a murderer, but just that like I'll keep thinking the thought murderer and that's distressing that that thought keeps coming up in the first place. And, and so there are, again, there are so many obsessions. In fact, I, I almost, I, I, I don't think there's anything that would ever surprise me 
Um, if somebody were to come in and say, I've been obsessing about this. Oh, I, well, one that I, I should say that I think um, oftentimes people don't realize is OCD and oftentimes people are very uh, embarrassed or ashamed even to admit it's hard for them to confide in their therapist. Um, there can also be sexual obsessions. So these can be you know, forbidden ideas or images either with women or men, depend- and you know, regardless of the individual's gender. They can also be concerns with um, uh, or thoughts that involve children or incest, so sexual thoughts involving children or incest or rape. They can also be thoughts, uh, you know, concerning one's sexuality. So maybe, you know, for someone who is heterosexual, maybe, maybe I'm really gay and just don't know it. Or what if I am gay? Um, could also be the opposite, right? So for someone who's um, who identifies as gay, you know, what if I'm actually straight? So again, uh, these are just, I'm just you know, really scratching the surface, but as you can already see, there's just such a wide array of obsessions that we can see. And oftentimes OCD doesn't just latch onto one thing, but many things. So it's really common to, for someone to have just about all of these or six of these that are pretty, you know, pretty intense for the individual. And because these obsessions cause so much anxiety and so much distress, people with OCD typically try to do something to avoid these thoughts in the first place to, you know, so that they don't get, have these obsessions come up in the first place or so that they can like neutralize the anxiety that they feel, reduce that anxiety or prevent some feared outcome from happening. And I, I, I'm realizing I should also note here that before I even dive into the ways in which people go about trying to get rid of these or avoid these obsessions in the first place, I want to note that obsessions are really common. We, we all have them, actually. So I think there, there was a study a long time ago that looked at people who, without, who don't have any type of anxiety disorder, and about 98% of those individuals reported having obsessions at some point in their life. You know, thoughts while driving, like, what if I just turned my car off of the road and went off the, you know, the, like the edge of the, the freeway or something like that. Um, or what if I drop my baby while I'm walking down the stairs? Um, so we all have those thoughts from, from time to time. And what, you know, again, what differentiates those with OCD from those without is how they respond to those obsessions. So most of us, when we have a thought like that, we're like, oh, that's a weird thought. And I'm going to keep, you know, keep driving or I'm going to keep walking with my baby down these stairs. But for people with OCD, they, they tend to respond to these thoughts as, oh my goodness, right? Even if they know that there's a low likelihood that that thing will happen, that the, the potential for that thing to happen, the uncertainty around whether it, you know, whether it could or could happen just really seems really scary and distressing. And they feel the need to get some certainty to make sure that that horrible thing won't happen or again, to get rid of the anxiety they feel in that moment. And so there are two main ways that people tend to respond to obsessions. The first is just by avoiding things that that could again trigger those obsessions. So for instance, maybe, you know, uh, if you're a mom and you have a fear that you might hurt your child, that you might accidentally drop your child down the stairs while holding them and walking down the stairs, 
maybe you don't pick up your child on the stairs, right? Maybe you, you know, you're only, you make a point to only ever be at home with your kid when somebody else is at home, another adult is at home who can carry your, your young child down the stairs. Or again, maybe if the child's old enough to walk, maybe you insist that the child walk down the stairs. That would be an example of avoidance. Or maybe you avoid, you know, watching, um, if you're afraid, let's say you're afraid of getting into a car accident, maybe you avoid driving or you avoid watching movies that involve car accidents, that sort of thing. So there's this avoidance. And, and what's interesting, I've talked about avoidance a lot in this podcast, um, I'll note that that avoidance in the moment when someone decides to avoid, right? A little kid is crying at your, you know, leg asking for you to pick them up and carry them down the stairs and you decide, oh, you know what, honey, your dad's going to carry you instead. In that moment, usually most of us tend to feel a, a pretty rapid reduction in anxiety because it's like, oh, phew, I don't have to do that thing that I was a scared, that I was really scared of doing. Um, and so that tends to each time we avoid in that way it's like we really we strengthen this habit that habit of reducing anxiety through avoidance just gets stronger we reinforce that um and and so it it works really well it's pretty powerful and effective in the moment but in the long run it tends to maintain and exacerbate anxiety because we don't give ourselves a chance to realize like oh you know, I can feel really anxious and hold my kid while walking down the stairs and tolerate that anxiety and most likely not drop the child on the way down the stairs. So, so that avoidance, again, it, it, it kind of backfires because, again, in the moment, it brings anxiety down. In the long run, it keeps anxiety alive. And oftentimes what people find is that, you know, maybe at first they just have to avoid one activity. But over time, because that habit gets stronger and stronger, they need to start avoiding more and more and more things. So as they avoid more, their worlds start to contract and shrink more and more. So that's the first way that people with OCD tend to respond to obsessions. And the other way that people respond is through compulsions or rituals. And so when I talk about a compulsion or a ritual, I'm talking about any behavior, either overt or mental, that someone performs with the intent of trying to reduce the anxiety or distress that's caused by their obsession or you know something that's performed with the intent of reducing the likelihood that their feared outcomes will occur so like i i said before when it comes to you know with obsessions there there can be so many different obsessions and there are also so 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 many different compulsions that people can perform and usually it's not that one that somebody relies on just one type of compulsion but on many many compulsions and so these can be again like i said either overt things that people do like you know your typical hand washing or checking to make sure the stove is off that the doors are locked turning off light switches in a certain way Um, And then they can also be a little less typical, things that maybe people wouldn't always um, notice or even common things that maybe many of us do, but that are just done in an excessive or ritualized manner. So for instance, things like, um, you know, maybe reading and like rewriting emails many, many, many times until they look just right. They come across as perfect. Um, And 
you know, it could be things like asking for reassurance. So asking our, you know, your partner or, or even like Googling online to look up a signs of a, an illness and doing that repeatedly, continuing to look that up, you know, asking for that reassurance or someone's opinion over and over and over again. So there are, those are just ex- some examples again of how, um, rituals might look those kind of more overt rituals but then i think there are also these um, rituals or compulsions that often go uh, or they're often just missed um, because they're mental again they happen in people's heads and so as clinicians it can be easy to you know to to not notice those right because so if somebody for instance is like tapping in session or is, um, you know, is, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of other things that somebody, you know, an overt behavior that someone might do in session. Um, you know, maybe it's just moving their body in some way. Um, that, that, that's pretty easy to detect, but sometimes people do things in their heads that really, you know, are done to neutralize the anxiety or to convince them that nothing bad is going to happen. And those are also rituals. So someone might, for instance, if they feel contaminated, they might almost like visualize themselves having a shower, right? And then, okay, maybe now I'm clean. Or they might say something over and over again, like, you know, um, that won't happen, right? That, that, that can't happen. Everything's okay. Or, um, you know, I, I don't think that type of thought. They may try replacing an upsetting image, like an image of them hurting someone they love with an image of them hugging that person. Um, they may also count in their heads to a certain number, right? If they count to like five and they do it repeatedly in sets of fives, maybe then, you know, that feared outcome won't happen. Um, they may also do something, they may like kind of create lists in their head of things that maybe have been contaminated or things that need to be done in order to make things perfect or just right, or they may mentally review things in order to figure out if their feared outcome happened or will happen. Um, or if, you know, they, yeah. So for instance, they might mentally review, um, a conversation to make sure that they didn't say anything that was offensive or insulting, that they didn't emotionally harm the other person they were speaking with. And they may do that over and over and over and over again. Or they may, you know, mentally review all the reasons why they would never hurt, you know, never sexually abuse a child or why they're not gay for instance they may review all the reasons like oh i've been attracted to women before or i you know i get aroused when i'm with my 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 uh partner of the opposite sex so all these things that can happen mentally that um that sometimes again people don't even recognize as rituals and therapists oftentimes don't recognize as rituals but in, in order for someone to meet criteria for OCD, they need to have obsessions, either obsessions or compulsions or both. And what I'll just say is that almost always, sometimes people will say that I, I have pure OCD, pure O OCD. So I just have obsessions. I've just yet to see a case where that is the case, I'll, right? The, they think they just have obsessions, but it turns out they have these obsessions, like the first initial thought that comes into their mind, that's the obsession. And then there are all of these compulsions that follow. 
Um, and one I didn't put out there for like a mental compulsion might even be a prayer, repeating a certain prayer over and over again or saying a certain prayer in a set way. Again, we're just scratching the surface here in terms of the compulsions, but those are some, uh, some examples. And just like the avoidance behavior, what's interesting to note about the compulsions is again, in the moment, they tend to work really well, um, at least at first. So maybe I'm feeling really anxious that maybe I, you know, maybe I worshiped the devil, for instance. And so then maybe um, I go to my priest and I confess and, um, you know, I, I, and the priest lets me know, you know, it's okay. That's just one example. And then, you know, maybe I feel a lot better after that because the priest told me, oh, it's okay. You, you probably didn't worship the devil there. And so I feel a lot of relief, right? And then what happens though, then the thought later might come up, well, what if I didn't explain it well enough to the priest? Or what if the priest was just saying that to be nice? Or what if the priest was wrong, right? Or what if I didn't worship the devil yesterday, but what if I do next week or tomorrow or today? Um, and so so those, those compulsions oftentimes in the moment work well, but then the thought almost always comes back again. The intrusive thought, just, you know, the obsession comes back with a lot of anxiety and then a need, like we feel this need to perform a compulsion in response to that obsession. And over time, these compulsions tend to become less and less effective. So, you know, at one point in time, maybe um, asking uh, someone for reassurance, you know, really work to help me to feel better. But now I need to do so many other things. I need to ask for reassurance and I need to um, do other mental rituals, you know, push the thought away. And I need to, um, you know, again, just do do so many compulsions in order to help myself feel better in the moment. So that what, what can happen is that the compulsions start taking up more and more time. And again, because like, you know, oftentimes OCD also as it, you know, maybe at first it latches onto one thing and then over time it's like we start, other obsessions pop up and then now it's not just around religious obsessions that I'm having to do compulsions, but also around, you know, the fear of harming others or of being contaminated or not doing things just in a just right way. So now I've got to do all these other compulsions as well. So they start to take up more and more time. So that's just a really quick rundown of what OCD entails and how the symptoms of OCD relate to one another and how they can look. Um, but I want to be super clear that the list of obsessions and compulsions and avoidance behaviors that I just ran through, that was not intended to be exhaustive by any means. So I really just kind of was spouting off things as they came to my mind. Um, so I, I want to throw that out there that OCD can present in so many different ways. And so if there were obsessions or compulsions that you or someone you know or care about or are working with are experiencing that I didn't mention today, that doesn't mean that OCD isn't what's going on. So I want to note that. And regardless of the obsessions or compulsions that you or, or someone else are experiencing, really at the heart of OCD is this difficulty tolerating distress and uncertainty. 
So again, the obsessions tend to evoke a great amount of distress and, and the compulsions are performed in an attempt to reduce that distress. And in addition, people with OCD, again, oftentimes the reason why they're so distressed is because they're worried that something terrible, some sort of catastrophic or or really unpleasant outcome might occur or maybe has already occurred. And so there's a lot of uncertainty or doubt there. And it's that, that difficulty tolerating distress and uncertainty that really kind of, kind of keeps this this cycle going right that perpetuates this OCD process and so as you can probably imagine a lot of what we're going to want to do in treatment for OCD is to help someone learn to better tolerate the distress and uncertainty that they they experience when when they are obsessing And I'm not going to go into the rationale for treatment with exposure and response prevention today, Uh, and I'm not going to talk about what exactly treatment entails. But what I do want to say before wrapping up is that, um, that, again, that exposure and response prevention is highly effective. But in order for it to be effective, it does require a really thorough assessment of an individual symptom. So we really need to understand what's going on for that person. First, we've got to make sure we've arrived at the correct diagnosis that it is indeed OCD that the person's experiencing. And then we've got to make sure to really clearly map out um, the relationship between one's obsessions and one's compulsion. So like understanding what are the specific fears what are you know and what are what is the individual worried might happen if they don't do their rituals or if they start approaching avoided situations people objects so that's really really critical in order for treatment to work we need to take the time to do that thorough assessment and the other piece that's also essential is that the the patient you know the person who has OCD that they really buy in to the treatment that they understand why they're going to be doing this treatment and you know that they can they have at least some understanding of how it might work for them and one thing i want to note is that it's common for people to think that i see it a lot that people think that you know well this treatment it might be the gold standard treatment for ocd and it might work for a lot of people but i don't know if it can work for my ocd and i think this is often common when either when the stakes seem really high, right? When it almost seems like, you know, if, if for instance, in cases of contamination, when someone's worried that if they get contaminated, that they might actually get really sick and die, or if they're worried about, you know, that if they harm someone, they might actually kill that person or kill themselves. Um, that can be, that can make it seem like, well, are you sure this treatment really can work for me? And same thing, I think sometimes when there's like a, when there are real life concerns, right? A real event that has happened in the past or that could happen in the future um, or uh, a relationship, a really important relationship that somebody's really obsessing about. Sometimes in those cases, I think people can say, you know, I just don't know that this can work for what I'm going through right now. And what I want to say, again, you know, it's not that everybody gets better from treatment, but I think if the the one thing I want you to take from this is that 
exposure and response prevention works no matter the content of the obsession. So I often say that the content is kind of irrelevant, right? That like it does matter in that it might shape or, or, or guide our treatment in terms of what are the specific exposures that we do? What are the rituals we need to make sure we're omitting? But at the end of the day, the, the, our approach is going to be the same no matter what obsession somebody's experiencing. It's almost like we, uh, we have this formula that we work with and we just kind of plug in you know, whatever's going on for that person and, and um, apply the same tools no matter, no matter the obsessions or the compulsions that an individual has. So I think that can be really encouraging for people to note that, again, it's no, no obsessions are like too much or too scary for this treatment to work, even if it might seem like that might be the case to the individual. And this can also be encouraging to keep in mind because during treatment, it's not uncommon for OCD to kind of morph and change. So someone might start out just having uh, obsession, like harm-related obsessions, and then maybe... You know, they end up having some obsessions with, um, with you know, some sexual obsessions or some, you know, obsessions with needing to do things perfectly. And it can kind of, again, change with time. And so it can be encouraging to note that, like, no matter what OCD throws someone someone's way, our approach is going to be the same. And so it's just about really learning to master that approach. And, and sometimes at first in treatment, it can almost feel like this prolonged game of whack-a-mole. It's like you, you know, you target one obsession and a new one pops up and that can get frustrating. But the more and more you practice it, again, the more like almost second, second hand or second nature, um, it, it becomes, and so um, sometimes it, I almost think of that as like, great, you know, great that OCD has decided to latch onto something else because it gives us another opportunity to practice using these new skills that the person's developing in treatment to respond to whatever, ever, you know, whatever OCD throws, throws their way that day. So I'm going to, with that said, I'm going to uh, end here for today. But um, like I said, in the next few episodes, I'll be talking more about OCD. And so I hope you'll, uh, I hope you found this helpful and that you'll keep tuning in to learn more about OCD. And, And if you find this helpful or if you know someone who you think might have OCD or struggle with any type of anxiety, I hope that you will... Uh, recommend this podcast. That's it, it would mean a lot to me, and my hope is that it'll be helpful to to all those who end up listening. All right, thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.